Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So one of the fundamentals of Operation Prosperity Guardian, I mean, it has to do two things, right? One is to cohere the war fighting effort along the lines I've just described. That's that's part one, to bring everyone onto the same hymn sheet. Part two is providing a, a link between the merchant marine and the ships trying to get through and cohering them into some semblance of order from which you can protect them the most efficiently. Israel. אנחנו במלחמה, לא במבצע, לא בסבבים, במלחמה. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. 祖国统一是历史必然，两岸同胞要携手同心，共享民族复兴的。I just find bombs and I find dead people, and like maybe one day I'll end up like them. But it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs> I'm David Knowles, and this is a bonus episode of Battle Lines. For months now, tensions have been running high in the Red Sea as Iranian-backed Houthi rebels continue to target commercial shipping with missiles and drones. We've reported on this in the last episode of Battle Lines, but I wanted to get more of an understanding on the story from a naval perspective. How does a warship shoot down an incoming missile? What's the strategy behind Operation Prosperity Guardian? That's the name given to the US-led multinational task force that is intercepting and destroying the Houthi attacks. And crucially, is it even working? And what may come next? For this bonus episode of Battle Lines, I spoke to Telegraph writer and former Royal Navy officer and warship captain Tom Sharp. Here's our conversation. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Just to start off with, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your service, your experience, and what you've been doing the past 10, 20 years? Hi, David, and thanks for having me on. So I was a warfare officer in the Royal Navy for 27 years. I joined in 1990. I did my degree in the Navy, and then I spent the next 20 or so years at sea in all sorts of different ships, from the smallest to the largest in different jobs. Every two years, you'd rotate into a new job. So it was never dull. I traveled the world, certainly sailed the seven seas. I was lucky enough to get command of four different ships, Northern Ireland, fishery protection. I had command of our icebreaker and then a Todoray frigate, a sonar frigate towards the end. So I had a good run of it. And then towards the end, did a few more shore jobs, which is inevitably the way before leaving in 2017. You certainly know what you're talking about then. We've spoken on this podcast before about this situation in the Red Sea. Could you give us the sort of latest updates there, what's happening, and what do you think is important for our listeners to know? The Red Sea at the moment is all about restoring freedom of navigation. That's what the Iran-backed Houthis have successfully challenged through a string of missile, piracy, and surface drone attacks. It really started on the 26th of October, so there was a little bit of a delay post 7th of October. But on the 26th of October, the Houthis re-announced their presence at the international stage 
in quite dramatic fashion. Of course, they've been a presence in that region for a long time and have been in sort of open conflict with Saudi since 2015, although that had abated recently. So the 26th of October was a real kind of re-emergence, and they fired multiple drones and missiles up the Red Sea, all of which were intercepted by a US Navy warship. And that theme has carried on since then with a steady trickle of attacks. In fact, 72 drones in total, 14 anti-ship ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, piracy attempts, successful piracy attacks, and so on. And so they've really disrupted the flow of trade through this critical choke point. And it's it's sort of 15% of world trade passes through the Red Sea. So it goes to the choke point, the Bab al-Mendab at the bottom, which is where the Houthis are, and then heads up the Red Sea and goes through the Suez Canal via Egypt and into the Mediterranean. So it's a critical choke point, And they've strangled it very successfully so far. And what do you make of the response of the international community so far? It's been fascinating to track. In the early days, when they started shooting, there was an assumption that they would be shot back at almost immediately. When they did something similar in 2016, 2017, they fired a couple of missiles at the USS Mason, the same type of warship that's at large in the Red Sea at the moment. And a couple of Tomahawk were fired back almost by return of post. So there was an assumption as this was bubbling up and US forces were gathering, including the Eisenhower carrier strike group, so a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, was all part of this amassing of US Navy forces. There was an assumption that they would be struck back, but they haven't been. And what has happened is a coalition has been set up called Operation Prosperity Guardian that is 100% defensive in nature. And that's where we are at the moment. So this reassuring piece trying to reassure the global shipping companies that they can safely pass through the Red Sea, but it's entirely defensive as ships slowly join it. I think sometimes on this podcast, we take a very sort of strategic view of things, but I'd really like to hear from you a bit more about life on board a warship. Can you talk us through what happens when a missile is spotted? Who does what? How much time do you have? Can you take us through the procedure and the process? I can. I mean, the Red Sea is not a particularly nice place to operate in that respect. It gets very narrow towards the bottom. It's uh, 16 miles wide. So it's tight at the bottom. It does then widen quite quickly, but you're in a constrained environment. So you lose some of the advantage that warships inherently have in terms of range and maneuver. So you're quite cramped and the conditions there aren't particularly favorable either. Radar conditions tend to be quite poor. Uh, The sea surface temperature tends to be very high, which makes your engines sweat. So it's a difficult operating environment. So if you're in a box sitting at the bottom of the Red Sea and your job is to provide air defense within that box to protect merchant ships as they pass through from missile attack. You have to be on your guard. And the first thing that will happen is, generally speaking, a radar contact will emerge. Now, modern radars can see over land, some way inland. So this will probably happen over land. If it's coming straight towards you, the system will allocate a track almost immediately to that new contact. So that's the first indicator that something is not right. And then you very quickly go through a set of procedures to identify what that contact is. And there's a checkoff list based on height, speed, maneuvering. Is it replying to warnings? Is it transponding on its squawk box? And so on. There's about eight or nine of these things, each of which have a different desk in the operations room. So you go through this procedure in about five to 10 seconds that determines whether or not this thing is friendly or not. The system might already have made that decision for you, but you have to endorse that. There's always a human in the chain to confirm whether or not this thing is friendly. Now, if it's a ballistic missile and it's doing, let's say, 2,000 miles an hour, which is about the right speed for some of those missiles down there, 
and you're 30 miles off the land, which again is about right for the topography down there. You're going to be about that distance. And you see this thing as it goes feet wet. In other words, it paints on the radar as it appears over the water. You've got 54 seconds before it hits you. But of course, you haven't got 54 seconds because that's the moment it hits you and you want to engage it considerably before then. Otherwise, bits of it will still hit you if it's too close. So you've got to go through that classification process. Then you have to, the command decision, right? This is hostile and we need to engage it, needs to be made. Then you need to get the weapon system, the right weapon system allocated to it. You need to maneuver the ship to give your other measures a chance to, to succeed. So we tend to concentrate on shooting these things down with missiles, but there are other ways of defeating missiles that involve what we would call soft kill. So you need to maneuver the ship for that. Then you need to press the button. Then the missile needs to deploy. So in reality, you've got 30 seconds. So those ships at the bottom of the Red Sea right now in those boxes providing air defense are on 30 seconds notice to make all those decisions and fire a multi-million pound missile at something heading their way. So it's incredibly tense and they have to sustain it for days and weeks at a time. You said at the end there, you know, it's tense, you've got 30 seconds, you're sustaining this for days, for weeks. What impact does that have on the crew? We sort of talked about this before we started recording, but how do you make this sustainable? Because I can see how you might do this for a few days, but if there's no necessary ends to the operation in sight, how do you make sure that it's something you can still provide and something you can still do? It's really tough to do. You put the ship into two watches, so you effectively cut it in half and you do six hours about. Now, different departments on board will, will play tunes on that, but the operations department sitting at a radar will do it for six hours at a time. That's pretty much the limit beyond which you can't concentrate, you'll get fatigued and you'll, and you'll make mistakes. I mean, it's, it's stretching the limit already, but it's the most sustainable way to do it. So you do six hours on and then you have six hours off. Of course, you've got to eat and do any sort of other admin work in your six hours off. So generally speaking, you're getting about four hours sleep at a time. So it's tough and, and it becomes an existence, but it, it is an existence that you can sustain. But when you're in a very high threat environment like this, and I did it in the Northern Gulf protecting the oil platforms, then it's not much fun. And at that point, you're really sort of almost counting the days to when you can get off task, get out of theater, relax a bit, perhaps go alongside, reset all your switches, ready to sail and go back and do it again. So yeah, it's a tough gig and we shouldn't underestimate the impact this will be having on some of the people who are being asked to do it. Could we zoom out then from an individual ship and talk about the ways in which different nations, because of course Prosperity Guardian brings in a number of different nations contributing ships and crew. How do they work together? What are the kind of issues you find if you've got multiple countries sending multiple different sorts of ships? How do sailors make that work? Yeah, it really depends where they're coming from. So one of the fundamentals of Operation Prosperity Guardian, I mean, it has to do two things, right? One is to cohere the warfighting effort along the lines I've just described, that's that's part one, to bring everyone onto the same hymn sheet. Part two is providing a, a link between the merchant marine and the ships trying to get through and cohering them into some semblance of order from which you can protect them the most efficiently. So those are the two parts of Prosperity Guardian. The first part is the bit that you've alluded to, and you really want as many people plugged in, let's call that as possible, because if you're all singing from the same air picture, which is what I just described. I described to you one ship providing its own air picture, but you don't want that. You want five or six ships all providing their air pictures. And then one ship in the task group is assigned to bringing them all together and you get what's called the recognized air picture. That is your, now your fighting circuit. And it's really important to have that because you might not see a, an aircraft's transponder. 
So it's coming towards you at 600 knots, and you haven't seen its transponder for whatever reason, the vagaries of, of physics. So you think it's hostile because it's not transponding, but another ship will see it pinging as if it was a civilian airliner, and they'll go, no, 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 hang on. So you've got to have this cross-reference. The more ships you have not in that system, the more likelihood there is of there being a misunderstanding between the ships. So, for example, the Chinese operating their ships there and, and the Indians not plugged into a Prosperity Guardian's recognized air picture whilst helping, and they're perfectly entitled to do so, in my view, just increase the risk of miscalculation very slightly. You mentioned earlier that Operation Prosperity Guardian is defensive in nature and not offensive. And I think it'd be interesting to hear a bit more about that. What do you think the strategy is behind that? And do you think it will work? Well, it's not working at the moment. That's for sure. The rate of vessels declining to go through and going round the Cape of Good Hope is going up. In terms of container vessels, it's almost 95% now. They're the highest value. And so the costs for them going through are much, much higher. So those companies, the big companies like Maersk and MSC and Hapag Lloyd, have all decided it's not worth it. You're better off paying the extra money on fuel and going the long way around. So in terms of reassuring commercial shipping in order to restore freedom of navigation in the Red Sea, Prosperity Guardian isn't working yet. Now, we have to give it time. These things are complicated. And if you look at the formation of the piracy group, the anti-piracy coalition, just slightly out of the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden back in the in the sort of early teens, it took quite a few years, actually, to kind of really cohere and come together because you do have this problem of getting ships in from all different countries. So Prosperity Guardian needs to be given time to settle. But my concern in amongst all of this is that the Houthis have been able to operate with complete impunity so far. They can drive their mobile launchers up and down the beach, fire their weapons, and then drive off without fear of reprisals. And in a pure warfighting terms, that doesn't make any sense because eventually they're going to get lucky. Well, they have been lucky. They have hit ships. Those ships have been lucky that none of them have sunk yet. Sooner or later, there's going to be an accident. They're going to hit a tanker or a gas carrier or a warship. And at that point, reprisals become obligatory. And you might as well have done it beforehand. Shoot the archer, not the arrow. So in my view, Prosperity Guardian, whilst it remains entirely defensive, it won't work. It won't provide the reassurance required to get ships back through the Red Sea. Listeners to this, who also might follow our Ukraine podcast, might note some similarities between fighters on land firing missiles at ships at sea without any, and, and not actually, you know, it's not Navy on Navy, it's firing anti-ballistic missiles to hit something in the sea. That's what the Ukrainians have done quite effectively uh, to neutralise the Russian Black Sea fleet. Do you see those kind of similarities? Um, it'd be interesting to hear, if, if not as well, actually, if you think that's completely wrong, and you know, what, what similarities and differences are there there? And do you think this maybe marks a development of naval warfare, that this is now happening again in a completely different part of the world? You're essentially describing a state without a navy stopping freedom of navigation from a country with a navy. Yeah, I mean, it is that, in that respect, it's it's the same. The Houthis' use of missiles and mobility is very Iranian-led, so rather dissimilar to what Ukraine is doing. But the end result is the same. The Russians have been driven eastwards in, in the Black Sea, and the humanitarian corridor is now working. And grain, I think they're up to about 75 80% of that flow is now going. So that's a rare success story in the world of global choke points right now. The wider point about drones and their use in the maritime environment isn't new at all. 
we've been working against this as a threat for years, maybe even decades now, partly because the Iranians were so far ahead of the curve in this respect. Thousands of fast attack craft, some of which were uncrewed. We're just seeing it play out. And, and what it shows is the gap between offensive drones and defensive drones has widened slightly with offense in the lead. Now, those working on defensive systems against these drones will raise their eyebrows and every time this is mentioned because they have been working on these systems for some time, but they do need to get on with it because you can't keep firing $2 million missiles at $20,000 drones. It's not sustainable. You need something else, whether that's something to sever the link or an energy weapon such as a laser, that gap has, has opened. So it's not new, but it has brought the difference into, into stark relief. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking at the past few weeks, well, months then, what do you think we've learned about the nature of modern naval warfare, how that might change in the future, and maybe any lessons that you think navies around the world should be taking from what we're seeing? I think that the fundamental business of naval warfare has not been altered by this. You still need the right balance of ships, whether that's patrol boats up to aircraft carriers. If you want to be a credible global navy, you still need that mix. I think the the era of the destroyer and the frigate isn't going anywhere. The idea that they could be automated in some way, there are far too many human decisions going on inboard those things at the moment on a daily basis, as, as described earlier for that to be automated. So I think people often try too hard in these situations to look at, you know, is this the battleship moment? The Eisenhower, so the, the aircraft carrier is obviously a particular sort of interest to me. And, and the fact that we have one sitting alongside in Portsmouth Harbour is a source of frustration to me. I believe that should be underway. But the fact is the Eisenhower at the moment, this 100,000 tonne nuclear powered aircraft carrier is in the Red Sea doing the business, providing F-18 sorties and intelligence gathering and the potential for special forces. Don't forget, a lot of these ship movements are about deterrence rather than strike. So she's there doing that. And then the destroyers underneath that are doing their their picketing roles for Prosperity Guardian. So it's really, in in my view, just endorsed the fact that our shipbuilding program from a Royal Navy perspective in terms of balance is still about right. Nothing has really changed that. But you need numbers. You know, that's what we haven't had for decades now, and it's getting worse. You know, recent news has made it worse that our surface fleet is is in decline and has been since forever. And this is this has shown if you just look at the Arleigh Burks, the American destroyers that are there, you know, they've got five or six. That's more than we've got. You know, well, we've got six destroyers, but two of them are in maintenance. You, you know, so there's a real numbers element to this. And those that pursue bespoke, beautiful technological solutions 
to some of these problems, I think, can forget that. That's really fascinating. Well, let's talk briefly then about the British aircraft carrier. You brought it up there. That's not been sent out to the Red Sea yet. It'd be good to hear a little bit more about your thoughts there. Why has it not been sent and what difference could it make? I think we've forgotten how to use aircraft carriers. I mean, that's an incredibly sort of broad statement, but that's what it feels like. The conversations that I've had around the use of the carrier really settle on two things. The first one, and I think this is the Foreign Office perspective, is that it's considered escalatory. You sell an aircraft carrier and it's immediately escalatory. Now, that to me is a failure to understand maritime power to start with, but also the nature of aircraft carriers. If you look at, again, the USS Ford and the USS Eisenhower, it's very clear, particularly the Ford in the Eastern Mediterranean in the early days, post 7th of October, that they actually de-escalated events there. Very clear. I mean, that's unambiguous. And same with the Eisenhower, storming through the Eastern Mediterranean, through Suez, down through the Red Sea, into the Gulf, back from the Gulf to the Gulf of Aden. You know, none of that was escalatory. In fact, it was it was arguably the opposite. And they messaged everything all the time. From every time a helicopter took off, they put it out on their on their channels. We seem to have lost our confidence in that respect. And and so the idea that just sailing the carrier out of Portsmouth is somehow escalatory isn't right to me. What isn't right is is that you keep it there for fear of that. And then when you need it, it's two weeks away. So to me, getting the carrier out the door now is just prudent preparation and it doesn't have to be escalatory. And now there's some glaring holes in our carrier strike group capability. Of that, there is no doubt. Again, the consistent under-resourcing of the support infrastructure is perhaps coming home to roost with the number of jets we have and the number of jet pilots we have inevitably grabbing the headlines and that we don't have enough and we don't have enough airborne early warning and we don't have enough escorts. But the the irony of Operation Prosperity Guardian is that that's already there. This is the one time where we can genuinely take the carrier and plug in to all these allied resources and use it properly. And so I think we should. I think it should at least be on the on the table for discussion. And I'm not totally sure that it is. I think there's a risk aversion and a misunderstanding as to what it's for. Tom, this has been really fascinating. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to understand? I just think as we approach another year of uncertainty around the world with elections here, elections in the US, I just want to bang home the point about the global business of maritime trade and its importance. The merchant mariners who are out there who were pretty abused during COVID are still there running the world's lifeblood. And it takes something like the Red Sea or perhaps even the Suez when it got blocked periodically people go, oh, you know, stuff, everything in my house has arrived by sea. If you just turn that off, then it could be catastrophic. I'm not saying the closure of the Red Sea at the moment is catastrophic, but it is going to raise prices in our houses. This is definitely not something that's over there. And I think lots of people say, well, what, you know, our aircraft carriers should be in the channel, which is such a sort of misrepresentation of, of how navies work and what they're for. No, they shouldn't. They should be in the Red Sea because it affects us every day now. And I just don't think the point about us as a maritime nation and our dependence on the sea and therefore the Navy to protect that, I don't think that point can be made too often. But I just wish there was a higher base level of understanding of that and not one that spikes periodically when events happen and then returns back to normal levels. Because until that happens, the defence and the Navy won't be votable. They won't be vote worthy and will continue to be squeezed for resources in the way we have been for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Tom Sharp, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. 
To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.